Well, once again today, I have no witty introduction to the sermon, but I do have a warning and an expectation. This text is difficult, to say the least. I will not nearly come close to doing it justice with what uh, I have to say and the time that I have to try and say it. Um, And so, hence my expectation. I'm expecting you to put in some work on this text this week, if you haven't already, in preparation of today. There are difficult truths found here, um, but they are powerful truths that can help to reassure our troubled minds. So with that being said, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. I'll start reading Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We are to serve... In the new way of the Spirit. That's what Paul has just said, what he's just concluded at the beginning of Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. There are two masters to serve, two options that we have, the flesh and the Spirit. The inward man, the new heart, that's the Spirit. Then there's the outer man, the body of death, that's the flesh. But before we get off and thinking about existential matters dualistically or in us regular person speak 
Before we get off in thinking that life is just a matter of material versus immaterial, or physical versus spiritual, that all physical things are bad and all spiritual things are good, before we think this way, we must recognize that this is not what Paul is saying and not what the Bible teaches. Yes, there is a battle going on in each of us. But our physical self is not the enemy. And our physical self is able to be renewed. Paul calls us in chapter 12 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. There is an interconnectedness between the physical and the spiritual. They are not completely separate, unrelated aspects of the universe, and they are not completely separate, unrelated aspects of your life. The spiritual affects the physical, and the physical affects the spiritual. You have a body, and you have a soul. Right now, in this life, your body is decrepit and perishable and foolish by its sinful nature, but beautiful and useful for your new spiritual nature. What can be difficult in reading Romans and in reading many epistles is understanding the terminology of flesh and body. The flesh is oftentimes used to describe our sinful nature, the natural inclinations that we have to sin, the proclivities naturally that we possess to please ourselves, to use others, to spite God. This is the flesh. But the spirit, the spiritual, this is the new life that we have in Christ. This is the new life of the Holy Spirit in us, which has brought us into union with Christ. It's what Paul referenced earlier in chapter 6 when he talks about our baptism into Christ. We have been united with Christ by our spiritual death, and we have been raised to new spiritual life. These two things, the flesh and the spirit, are opposed to each other. They have different natures. The spirit is inclined to follow God. The flesh is inclined to follow sin. And the question that helps us to understand who is winning the battle is to look at the fruit that's being produced. That's why the question we asked last week is what we ended with. What fruit are you producing and how? What fruit are you producing and how? The truth of the matter, if we're being honest, is that as Christians, we are each producing two kinds of fruit. The life of the Christian is a life of struggle, a battle, a war between two natures. But I also want to point out something else before we dig deeper into that. There are similarities and differences between spiritual fruit and, as I'm just going to call it, philanthropic fruit. We can use our time and money to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick. Does working at a food pantry do good for others? Yes. Does working at a food pantry save your soul? No. Can you be a non-Christian and do good at a food pantry? Yes. Can you be a Christian and do good at a food pantry? Yes. Let us be careful to not despise the good deeds of non-Christians. They are good deeds. Let us be grateful that others are being cared for and provided meals and warmth. 
Would you say to a non-Christian doctor, simply because she's a non-Christian, I'm sorry, I don't want to partner with you to bring this patient to full health? That would kind of be absurd. Now, if all they're trying to do is acupuncture for appendicitis, you probably have legitimate grounds not to encourage them or associate too closely on a professional level. So let's be careful to not discourage good deeds done well. Let's also be careful to understand that philanthropic fruit is not by default a sign of spiritual fruit. Perhaps the nurse you're working with is only a nurse because it gets her a nice paycheck. Perhaps your coworker is only helping you out on this project because it'll score him points with y'all's boss. Perhaps that kid is only going to church and acting the part because his parents make him, and it's a better option than arguing with their authority every week. Fruit can be like that turkey on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Buttery brown on the outside, but dry and dead on the inside. So if we are to bear spiritual fruit apart from the law, how should Christians regard the law? That's another question we asked last week. Is the law pointless? Is the law sin? No. Why does Paul ask that question in verse 7 in our text? Is the law sin? Because sin has a close relationship to the law. Sin uses the law. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law, awakened. Where before we did not see sin as such, now we know it to be sin. But it's not just a knowledge of sin. What Paul argues is that sin uses the law to do two things. First, it exposes our sin in all its various forms. And second, it awakens in our flesh a desire to sin. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, it exposes our sin in all its various forms. This is what the law does. It makes us count our sin. We can now see sin for what it is, sin. Read verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So sin exists. Sin is real. It was real before the law exposed it, but now it's really real. Now I'm able to see it, see it for what it is. And there are a couple of ways that we deal with this new revelation. We can cover it up or we can try to destroy it. We cover it up by either saying, no, I don't do that, all the while knowing that we do, or blinding ourselves so that we don't think we do. We can cover it up by saying, no, that's not really sin. That law was for back then. That, that law doesn't still apply. And I bring this up not in order to go off on a tangent, but to make sure we understand both how our flesh often works and how the Bible works. Our flesh naturally wants to stay in the darkness. The realm of Adam, as we saw in chapter 5, is a domain of darkness, a realm of sin and death and shame. We all live 
there, here. We hide, we sneak around. The light burns. Have you ever stepped out of a movie theater into the parking lot in the middle of the day? I mean, talk about your eyes having to adjust, right? Oh, it burns, right? That's bright. Well, that's what the law does. It's the rays of truth beating down on the pupils of your wicked heart. It's like the fight or flight response. This would be the flight response. We run back into the theater. The fight response would be when we seek to mask the light. We put up a tent to sit under or we put on sunglasses. We shade the truth or misunderstand the truth, whether it's intentional or not. Our flesh wants to cover up the truth, block the truth, manipulate the truth. And a primary way that we manipulate the truth is by twisting what the Bible says. When it comes to understanding how the Old Testament law works in the New Testament age, there are a million ways to get it wrong. And there are people out there and spiritual forces out there that want us to get it wrong. Because if we get it wrong, we remain in the dark and we lead others into the dark. So what are some ways that we get the Bible wrong when it comes to the law? Well, we'll just list a few. First way is we deny that it's God's word. When we deny that the Bible is God's word, we empty it of its authority and power. If these are just the words of men, then I am not bound by it. This is how we attempt to destroy the reality of sin. A second way, we deny that the Bible is still relevant. That was for another people at another time. Our times have changed. Our times are different. Culture has changed. That's antiquated doctrine. We live in contemporary culture. One way that this can be expressed is by limiting or downplaying the role of the Old Testament in the life of the Christian. All I need is the New Testament, they would say. So you can say the whole Bible is not relevant, or you can say the Old Testament is not relevant. Variations of a similar way to get the Bible wrong. A third way. We deny that the Old Testament law still has a bearing on New Testament believers. Honestly, this is the main point I wanted us to get into, even if we can only spend a couple minutes on it. There is much to be said on this point, but for now I just want to make a few observations that I think will be helpful for us as we study God's word and seek to understand the role of the law for Christians. Now, you may remember last week that I posed the question, what is the role of the law for Christians? But I never really gave that much of an answer. Well, here's our chance to get into it for a minute. I'm only, again, going to scratch the surface, but hopefully what I say will be a few good guidelines for us as we study and understand God's word. The first one, when we refer to the law, we are namely referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're not going to find many new guidelines or rules to follow in the rest of the Old Testament. And most of these rules can be found really in just the second half of Exodus and Leviticus. Second idea point, the Old Testament sacrificial system is no longer necessary. I've already preached through Hebrews. You can go back and listen to that if you want. I think I recorded those. Should have. Um, you can just read Hebrews. 
You'll never hear me tell you to bring your guilt offering or peace offering or sin offering because I'm not a priest and I don't have an altar to sacrifice anything on. And even if I did, I wouldn't even know where to start and what to do with all that blood meat. Right? We know that the Old Testament sacrificial system is no longer necessary because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's speaking of Jesus. So, the sacrificial system, what people in the Old Testament were required, expected to do, we no longer are. We know that. We have an entire book, Hebrews, that tells us that, much less all the other references in the New Testament that speak of such. A third point. There are some aspects of the law that continue and some that do not because Jesus and the New Testament writers reference them specifically. Most other aspects of the law are referenced in the New Testament besides the sacrificial system. And those parts of the law are either disregarded or upheld. Now, it's important to note that this goes beyond simply what just Jesus said. We cannot only look to the red letters of what Jesus is recorded as saying as our only source of which parts of the law are upheld and which are disregarded. We have been given the New Testament as a whole in order to more fully understand both Christ's work and how we are to live under this new covenant in Christ. So a couple examples. Matthew 5, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, though really you could read a lot of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus doesn't say you can go off and murder whoever you want. He says, you thought that was tough to live by. This is really the heart behind it. Jesus actually doesn't just uphold the law. He clarifies its purpose and intention and almost seemingly expands upon it. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul gives a list of vices. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What's included in that list, as well as several other lists that Paul and other writers give, are several no-nos that are also found in Leviticus, especially sexual immorality in the forms of adultery and homosexuality. In both those instances, the law is upheld or even clarified and expanded. Then there is the proper disregarding of the law, which can be found in moments like Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. To paraphrase, Peter is told that he can now eat bacon, whereas before that was a no-no under the law. It's a very quick paraphrase. So in some places, Jesus and the apostles teach us to uphold certain parts of the law. In other places, we are no longer obligated to uphold the law. So the general principle to remember 
is to look to the New Testament to understand when and where to apply the laws of the Old Testament. Silence in the New Testament does not mean that the Old Testament law still remains. To understand sin now means we have to understand where and how God's law has changed. It has not fully changed, but certain aspects of it have. So it's no longer sin for God's people to eat pigs. It is still sin to practice homosexuality. But there are many in our society who deny this. What God defines as sin, our world may classify as acceptable. And they do this by either intentionally twisting God's word or denying it altogether. Now I know that As I said, I've only scratched the surface of all of that. But we need to get back to our text. Look at more than just one verse. And hopefully, with what has just been said, we have a better idea of what it means to sin, of what the law is, in fact, for us as New Testament believers. What we're dealing with when... Paul talks about the law and how we relate to it now. Remember that Paul in Romans 7 is telling us that sin uses the law to do two things. First, it exposes our sin in all its various forms. And so the proper interpretation of the law, especially now, helps us to know what is actually sin and what is not. Second, It awakens in our flesh a desire to sin. This is something that I don't often think about when I think about the relationship of the law and sin. It makes us want to sin. This is Paul's argument, really, in this entire section. The law awakens in our flesh a desire to sin. Why he is asked the question in chapter in verse seven, is the law sin? Look at verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And skip down to verse eleven. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin is using the law to bring death to us. But the law itself is not sinful. Verses 12 and 13. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. All of us, all of us have a sinful nature, Paul included. And this sinful nature is one that we still struggle with as Christians. The law is good and spiritual, he says in verse 14. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Look at it and notice that Paul is not just talking about his past actions or his past state of being. 
In verse 14, he starts talking in the present tense. I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. But how can Paul say this about himself? Hasn't he just said in chapter 6 that we who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin? That sin has no dominion over us when we are in Christ? He did say that, and yet now he says this. So either he is clearly contradicting himself, or more accurately, he is helping us to understand ourselves better. He is opening our minds to the fact that we live between two worlds. We are not fully in one or the other. We belong to both. We're in this middle state where we have a foot on each side. Let's read verses 15 to 18. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. So do you see it there? He clarifies, nothing good dwells in his flesh. This part of him that remains, the flesh. The part of him that he does not want to remain, yet still is present. It haunts him, it stifles him. His intentions, his motivations that come from the new spirit inside of him are twisted. For I have the the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out, he says. Verses 19 and 20. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He wants to do right. He wants to do good. And by this known intention, he agrees with God's law and sees God's law as good and right and holy. He knows God's law is not sinful. He knows that sin is just using God's law to awaken itself. Don't touch that hot stove, you say. I may not have touched it if you hadn't told me not to, but now that you've told me not to, I'm going to test it out. Our flesh is like an immature kid testing the boundaries only because the boundaries exist. And we cannot control our flesh. I mean, that's a gut punch. The inner man has been made new. We are united with Christ in our inner being. But although our inner mind is completely in line with God's law, Although we present ourselves inwardly as servants of God, our flesh continues to present itself to sin. Read verses 21 to 24. And here, Paul's anguish as he writes this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you hear, do you read, do you see there the exasperation, the helplessness, the desire to get out of the pit of despair, 
Not only could Paul not save himself through works of the law in the first place, now as a Christian, his flesh is twisting the law so that it serves sin and unrighteousness. Paul could not justify himself and make himself a new man. Only Christ could through the Spirit of God. Paul cannot sanctify himself and make this new man obey. Only Christ can through the Spirit of God. As a Christian, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do I just need to try harder? Do I need to follow these five easy steps to become holy? No. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Inwardly with my mind I serve the law of God, but outwardly with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As strange as it may sound, Paul gives us two reasons for hope. Number one, your struggle with sin is real and understandable. You sin because it's what your flesh knows. It's what your flesh wants. So don't allow this desire to sin come as a surprise to you. You still are in the flesh. You have this body of flesh. Don't use that, though, as an excuse to sin more. But also don't be surprised by it or act as if you're the only one who struggles. Look at how Paul himself struggles. Struggle well, because if you don't struggle at all, then perhaps your inner being is no different than your outer self. So, our first reason for hope. The struggle with sin is real, and it's understandable. It is a fact of life for all of those who are in Christ. And number two, the second reason for hope, is chapter 8, but that's next week. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the realization that we can have that we are still affected by this body of sin. And we don't just mean our physical body, but our flesh, our original sinful desire, our sinful nature that we still carry with us, that Paul himself speaks of, that he still carried with him. God, we don't want to give excuses as to why we commit the sins that we do. So God, help us to call sin out for what it really is, to stop chasing after it, Help us to delight in our inner being, the spirit that you have given to us, to delight in your law, to delight in your commandments, to delight in following and serving you. Help us to turn away from the things that we know to be sin. But God, we know that we cannot do this on our own. This is why we are praying and asking this from you. So that in us, our minds might be continually renewed, our hearts might be changed, 
our actions then would respond to that understanding. God, these aren't just truths that we want to know. This is a way in which we want to live, to honor you, to glorify you, to serve you as our new master, as the only master that we want to serve. So God, give us the strength, the courage to serve you and only you. We can only do this because of what Christ has done for us, because of what the Spirit is doing inside of us now. God, we need you to do this. Help us to not lose hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.